Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You know, we've added a few chairs in this morning. You may notice that. You know, I was thinking about last Easter, uh, there's about 10 people in the room. You know, I thought when this pandemic hit, surely by Easter, right? By Easter. Well, I'll be back. Well, by Easter, we're back. It is Easter and we're, we're coming back. And so I'm grateful for that. You know, as we begin this morning, um, when you think of the life of Jesus, would the word success be a word you would apply to Jesus' life? Now, certainly to the resurrection, I mean, that's pretty cool. That's a, a major event, rising from the dead. That's no, no small accomplishment. But when you think of the life of Jesus and you think of our story of success and the way that we live our lives and what's important in this world, would you call Jesus a success? I mean, if you had to write the story of Jesus, would it be written the way it's written in the New Testament? Someone that's born to pretty much insignificant parents in a poor community in a forsaken neighborhood, someone born of a carpenter, raised as a carpenter, rejected for the most part. Though people gathered around him, they were more interested in seeing what he could do than really who he was. And at the end of his life, he was rejected. It gets better. It's okay. The little kid was crying. He was rejected. He was condemned. He was mocked. He was crucified on a cross. When you think of the life of Jesus, do you think he was a success? And if you do think he was a success, do you live by his principles of success? The ones that take you to the top, which means the last will be first and the first will be last. You know, the ones that say that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. The one that says if you see someone is naked, you should clothe them. If you see someone without a home, you should provide it. If you see someone who is lonely, you should visit them. The ones that say you want to be the greatest of all? Do you want to sit at my right and my left hand and be a servant. When you think of the story of Jesus, I think in the church, we want the success, we want the resurrection, we want the power, but do we want his life? Because see, if we want the results of Jesus' life, you have to also embrace the principles by which Jesus lived. And for me, over this last year, it's been such a struggle because it seems at times the church has abandoned the teachings of Jesus. They just want the power of Jesus. We want the acknowledgement, we want the name, we want the notoriety, we want to be successful. But are we willing to be successful in the way that Jesus brought about success? That the way up is the way down. The way to significance is not through demonstrating your, your remarkable strength, but through weakness and humility, submitting yourself to those who may even hate you or mock you so that through your life, greater life might come. Do we want to be a success in the way that Jesus brought about success. Hey, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you wanna grab a Bible, we actually now have them in front of you. I'm excited, that's a new change. It's small, so small. Doesn't, not, doesn't take much to get me excited. But we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the greatest passage on the resurrection. We're not gonna read the whole thing, just parts of it. And Paul's gonna answer really three questions that I wanna look at. First, did the resurrection happen? Second, what did it accomplish and then if the resurrection happened and it's accomplished something, what difference does that make in our lives as we go about into a world that's calling us to success? 
How do we walk the path of Jesus? Because see, at Bergen Park, we have three goals. We want to be with Jesus, meaning intimacy. We want to then, in being with him, to become like him. And in becoming like Jesus, we want to do what Jesus did. So let's jump into 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 as we discover the implications of what the resurrection brings. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that, on, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now jump down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all have died, but so also in Christ shall all now be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And see, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So let's jump to the conclusion in verse 51. And so behold, I'm telling you this great mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, therefore, my beloved brothers, my sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, as we gather together this morning in your presence, Acknowledging, Lord, that you are, you are Lord of our life. Father, acknowledging the significance of this day. Would you speak to us? Father, would you take down just some of those defenses or help us to focus, to hear? Not simply what I say, but Father, what you desire for us to receive. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I imagine over the last few weeks or maybe today, tomorrow, you may see a documentary. There's a lot of documentaries about the resurrection. It's a popular subject, certainly around Easter. And typically what you hear is the resurrection is a glorious symbol. You know, it's a metaphor that out of bad events come good. That in the darkest times, just like Frodo and Sam going 
to Mordor, something good can come. Something out of darkness can raise to light. That behind every dark cloud is the silver lining. That in our culture, the resurrection is a symbolic idea. In the scriptures, it's an actual reality. That Paul is saying, first of all, the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection is going to impact your life, you've got to believe it's a historic event. That's the way Matt, Matthew describes it, Luke, John, Mark. They describe it as an event that took place in human history. And see, as Paul's writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, and especially this section, he's some 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. And he's writing what he has seen, what he has heard. And if you look back in verse 3, the way he describes it, is he says, I'm delivering to you what is of most first primary importance, what I also received. Now, the New Testament's not written in English, it's written in Greek. And those words received, delivered, are very technical terms. It means I studied, I looked into it. It's not that Paul just heard this idea of the resurrection, of course, he's gonna believe that. I mean, people back then, right, 2,000 years ago, they were dumb. They didn't know anything about engineering, they didn't know anything about science, they didn't know anything about life. We are a little bit wiser today, so we can see past the illusions. We can see past the falsities. Now, Paul studied. He looked into it, to the idea of this, this resurrection. And he, he even talked to those who were eyewitnesses, him himself. And he's saying to those who are reading this letter some 15 years after the resurrection, if you don't believe it happened, there are those that you can speak to. See, the New Testament says for the resurrection to have an impact in our lives, we have to believe it actually happened that Jesus physically on the third day, on the first day of the week, rose from the grave. The resurrection will not have an impact in your life unless you believe it happened. Now, what are the implications of that? There's a lot of great books that, are, that focus on the historicity of the, the resurrection, but what I wanna focus on is what it actually accomplished. What did the resurrection of Jesus actually do? How does it change our lives? And I wanna show you from this passage, there's two things. Something is over, and then something has begun. There's a reality that's ended for us. The resurrection accomplishes something that is over, and then something has begun. In verse 17, which we didn't read, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Paul's saying if the resurrection is not a historic reality, if Jesus is still in the grave, then we are still in our sin, that we can't know the Father. We can't have eternal life. We can't have the Spirit dwelling within us. If the resurrection didn't happen, notice he says, gathering this morning, it's futile. Because out of the resurrection, something has changed. And we see what has changed when you jump down in the latter ending of this passage at the end of verse 54. At the end of verse 54, he describes what has happened because what are the results of the resurrection? It says in, at the end of verse 54 that death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Yeah, bless you. Thanks. What does that mean? Because obviously death still exists. Jesus is risen and yet death is still here. Here's what it means. If you've been to a funeral at any time, and I know over this last year, many people have died as a result of this virus. And you're, 
you're at the funeral of somebody that you love and you see somebody's lifeless body, everything in us says, this isn't right. Now, I know there are those that want us to believe that death is natural. It's no big deal. I think it's a big deal. That just as you're born, you're going to die. You should just take it in stride. Don't be afraid. It's going to happen just like Mufasa, right? Simba, it's, it's no big deal. You see the grass? See the gazelles? We eat the gazelles. We destroy them. We take their life into us. And one day, Simba, good father-son moment right there. You can learn from this, dads. Simba, you're going to die. And when you die, your body's going to be in the ground and the gazelles are going to eat the grass. And it's just a beautiful circle of life until you see someone actually die. And that myth is destroyed. Death is not natural. The Bible says that death is not the way that God intended. Why? God created a good world. Your desires are good. I don't know if you realize that. I think so often we punish ourselves because we have desires. No, 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 no. Your emotions, your desires, those are good and right things God has given us. But see, God created us to love him. Jesus said the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. God created us to serve him, to care for him, to care for the world, to care for others. But we don't live like that. I mean, you do. I know you guys got it down. I have a, I've got issues with that. Because, see, I want to be the center. I want to be successful. I want to be significant. And in this world, to be significant and to be successful, sometimes you have to take, you have to climb. You got to put yourself at the center. But see what happens because God created a good world and in this good world, there's a balance. We are to love God, to love each other. We are to serve God, to serve others. But see, when we refuse that, disintegration comes into life. You know what that means? You know, in relationships, relationships have rules, don't they? I mean, I see a lot of couples here. I see a lot of people in relationships. They got rules. And it takes a while to kind of learn those rules. That's, when you get married, it's like you mess up the rules quite a bit. But eventually, you've got to figure them out. Otherwise, what happens to the relationship is the relationship dies because relationships have rules. Life has rules. Your body has rules. I mean, you can eat what you want for a while. And eventually, the laws of your body, the laws of life will lead to disintegration. You see that in every aspect of life. You just can't do what you want. The same thing is true with God. When God creates a good world and we're intended to love him, to worship him, and then to love our enemies, to pray for those who persevere, us, to care for the world, to care for creation. And when we rebel against that, what it leads to is disintegration, not between two people, but between us and God, us and creation. And see, that's where death comes in. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. That the wages of our rebellion is that we are now separated from God and there's nothing we can do to climb back up that ladder to restore God's good and wonderful and beautiful creation. And so what happens? That's where the resurrection comes in. That in the resurrection, Jesus has paid what death is owed. What is death owed? Death is owed judgment. Death is owed to be satisfied. When Jesus rose from the dead, it meant that death no longer can make a claim on us. Now, it's going to make a physical claim. We still have to go through that doorway of death. And yet there is no spiritual separation between us and the Father. But because Jesus died, therefore the Father sees us, sees me, as if I had done everything that Jesus had done. The Father loves me and treasures me the same way he loves and treasures Jesus. And to the degree I trust what the Father says about me, to that degree I will experience his love. 
See, in the resurrection of Jesus, what happens is death is finished. There is no longer a separation between me and the Father, for Jesus has taken that upon himself, and he declares in the resurrection, when we sing that, that it's over, it is done, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Death cannot hold us any longer. We can know the Father. Second, not only has something ended, but, but second, there's also something beautiful that's begun. Now, often within Christian circles, we focus, I think, somewhat too much on the cross and not enough on the resurrection and what it really means. Because in the language here, it's, it's sometimes difficult. I know as you read 1 Corinthians 15, I got questions, you got questions. But in verses 20 and following, there's this language of first fruits. And it's a common language within agricultural societies. We don't use it a lot. But it says that Jesus is the first fruit. So let's jump back down into that passage in verse 20, and it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised, meaning our faith isn't futile. We're not still in our sins. And if Jesus has been raised, therefore, notice he says the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. And then he goes on to explain it. And in verse 23, he goes back to that idea. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's saying when when all, all of history ends, when God comes back, there's going to be this great resurrection. But before that day, Jesus is the beginning of what is coming. See, the idea of first fruits is this reality that there is another world. There's an eternal world. And in this eternal world, there is no more crying or mourning. For the old order of things has passed away and God has made all, all things new. There are good relationships between people. There's good relationships between God, and that means there's great relationships between us and God's created universe because all things in God's presence have been made right. That universe, that world exists. It's the eternal world. Jesus called it eternal life because it's a quality of life. And what he's describing in the first fruits is that world has broken into this world. Now, what's this world? It's a world where death exists where there is crying, where there is pain, where there's brokenness in relationships, where churches and pastors fall into sexual immorality, where our own political leaders disappoint us and we long for something better. When Jesus rose again, he's saying, all that we're working for to heal life, right? In politics, in relationships, in culture, it exists. That utopian world, that hope that we have to make things right. If only this person got in power, everything will be set. The deck will be right. We long for that in this world. The first fruits means it's real and it's starting and it's happened. It's just like first fruits in a garden. Now, I'm not much of a gardener and I know some of you have greenhouses. I guess that's the only way you do it up here. Not much grows in the short time that we have. But if you have a greenhouse and you plant a tomato plant and that first fruit comes... It's the first fruit. It's fruit. But it's only the beginning of what's to come. Pretty soon, everything is going to begin to bloom. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying, God is restoring all things. Listen, don't trust what you just see. Don't just trust the story of death and brokenness and crying and pain. God is redeeming. God is healing. God is restoring this broken world, but it's just begun. And the resurrection of Jesus says that healing is here 
And listen, it starts in us. It's called the new birth. We must be born anew. What does that mean? It means the eternal world invades my real world and a bit of hell comes out and heaven comes in. See, God's not trying to rescue us out of hell into heaven. No, he's trying to kick the, the, the hell out of earth by heaven invading earth. And it begins with us. And it's the Holy Spirit coming in us. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings gifts and fruit. And those gifts and fruit are evidence of God's presence so that when we serve others, when we love others with the gifts that God has given, his very presence is at work healing and restoring and redeeming that there is redemption and restoration. The resurrection says, listen, all that you have ever hoped for, it's going to come true, but it's only begun. Now, let me explain to you why that's been so helpful and why I think it is because this year, it sucked. It was horrible. Now, maybe you guys did a lot better than I did. I'm in the people business, and I didn't get to see people. And I wondered where they were and what was happening and what was going on in their life. And I became cynical at times. I don't know if you did. I guess my heart's a little bit weaker than yours. But I'd look around, and I saw this political division, and I... I said, we're better than this, aren't we? And I saw the way that people spoke, even Christian leaders, the language, the slander they would use. And I said, that's not of Christ. And then I saw even within the church, leaders that I've loved, revered, respected, admired, fall into scandal. And my heart as a pastor, I said, God, what? not what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the church? I feel like an orphan. I don't know if that resonates with you. Sometimes for me, I like to look at the car crash for a little bit longer than most. And I spent a lot of time reading about things that are going on in the church. and It just began to crush me, to, to weigh me down. But see, the story of the resurrection means that as we look in the world, we should expect brokenness. But listen, healing has begun. And if you focus all your time on what's wrong with the world and what's wrong in me, you're going to find yourself at this place of hardship and, and cynicism and brokenness. But when you look at the resurrection, it begins to galvanize a hope. Because see, we talked about being successful, and often success means self-determination. You know, I got to be self-controlled. I got to be defiant against the obstacles I face in the world. I got to make it about me and overcome. And there's someone in literature in the story of cinematic history, who is a great example for me, his name is Sam Wise Gamgee. One of the greatest characters of all. Why? Because he was a friend. And he empowered, he encouraged, he made Frodo better. He's that person that comes alongside. And there's this moment in The Return of the King. And I know you guys know this story, right? I hope so. By now. If you're going to come here, you got to at least watch the movie at some point. And there's this moment where Sam is overwhelmed by the cynicism and the brokenness and the division in the world, and he's wondering, is there any hope? And suddenly, as he's in, under this dark cloud of oppression, he looks up to the stars. And here's what Tolkien writes. He says, there, I saw it, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor high in the mountains, Sam saw a white star. 
twinkle for just a while and see the beauty of that star, it smote his heart. As he looked up out of this forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shadow, like, like a, a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced, pierced in that in the end, the shadow, the darkness of this world was only but a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now, his song in the tower had been defiance, self-determination rather than hope. For then he was thinking of himself. And now for a moment, his own fate, even his master ceased to trouble him. For he crawled back into the brambles and laid himself beside Frodo. Putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. Now, what changed? He exchanged defiance for hope. He stopped looking at the brokenness of the shadow of Mordor, the brokenness of the world, and he saw something of light and beauty. And in gazing upon that which was light and beautiful, a shaft of hope galvanized his little hobbit heart and gave him something greater than defiance. It gave him courage, but it also gave him humility. When Paul's describing the resurrection, he's saying we have to look at the resurrection the way that Sam looked at the star. We have to see its beauty. We have to allow it to be like a, a ray of light that penetrates the heart that galvanizes us for a hope that results in courage and humility. See, how does the resurrection change us? It results Encourage in humility. Humility. I am so sinful. You think that would lead to self-hatred, but it doesn't because Christ had to die for me. Christians cannot be arrogant. We cannot feel morally superior. It's contrary to our message, which is the gospel. I am so sinful, Christ had to die. And that's not a great message if your life is about success. Because the start of the gospel is, Jason, you're weak. You're not strong. Jason, you're dependent. Jason, you're broken. You need to be healed. You need to be restored. But on the other hand, it leads to courage. I am so loved that Jesus was willing to die. Humble courage. You know what that does? It changes the way you see yourself. I don't know about you, but in this world, I face a lot of accusations. Sometimes they come from me. It's not from the world. I, I take the worst of the world, and I just multiply it in my head and say, see, you're just a mess. If these people knew your struggles, your fears, your insecurities, they wouldn't come back next week. There's no way. And we accuse ourselves. And the world accuses us. You're not enough. You're not significant. And there is an accuser, the father of lies. How do you overcome the accusations in the world? It's only through the hope of the resurrection. Let me explain. Have you ever tried to get by the receipt gal at Costco? <laughs> it's like the eyes of Sauron, right? They, they search to and fro. You cannot possibly, some of you have no clue. I know who knows the story and who doesn't. It's all right. There's no way to get past them. But imagine you did. Let's say for a miracle, you got, it was busy. It's Christmas time. You actually got past the receipt taker. You're out in the parking lot, you know, you're feeling a little prideful. I did it. And then you hear this voice, hey, did you buy that? Is that yours? What do you do? Whip out that receipt. 
Get away from me. Flee. It is mine. I am secure. It is paid for. It is done. That's what we have to do to the world and to ourselves sometimes. Jason, shut up. How dare you disgrace yourself when you are loved and cherished by the Father? You have to start to trust that what God says about you is true. And see, only to the degree you trust what God says is true will you experience the truth of his love. Martin Luther, a 16th century reformer, a monk that was overwhelmed with a lot of accusations. This is what he says the resurrection does and how we respond when those accusations come to us. He says, so when the devil throws your sin in your face and he says, you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit it. I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's the resurrection claim. Do I deserve to be rejected? You bet. You don't even know half the story. But I have one who died and rose for me. Death is defeated, and something new has begun. The resurrection gives you a humble courage when it comes to yourself, to trust that what God says about you is true and then to experience the depths of his love. But not only that, it gives you a humble courage for how you see life. That as you look out into the world, I don't know about you, I see a lot of brokenness. I see a lot of hardship. I see a lot of suffering. Over this last year, I've done a lot of counseling for different situations, and I have been broken just over the pain and and the difficulty that people have walked through. And then I've got my own junk. Who's talking to me? And there's stuff that's going on in my life. And as I said before, all of that darkness, the shadow that's over the land can terrify us. It can overwhelm us. And then we can say, you know, the church, gosh, we don't look much better. It seems like we're more interested in the success of the world. We want the power. We want the position. We want to sit at the left and the right of the king. Nothing's changed except the resurrection. See, it changes everything. Because there's no reason for cynicism because something new has begun. If Christ has risen from the dead, that means the power to heal things is in the world and it's in me. And it starts with me believing that I am alive to Christ and that I don't have to be afraid about the challenges in the world. I don't live in fear, but I'm humble. I'm humble because I recognize this world matters. It's significant. And so as I look out into the world, on the one hand, because of the cross and the resurrection, I expect things to be broken. I expect to find disappointment. I expect our leaders sometimes to fail, and even to fail in the worst of ways. But see, I also have an anticipation, not naive hope, but a real hope that says change is possible. Why? Because the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's in me. It's not about defiant Sam eyes. It's not about picking yourself up and being tough and good enough, being this masculine image. No, that's a false description of life. It's about faith in the one who is victorious on my behalf. So as I look in the world, I'm not given to cynicism. I'm not given to fear, but I'm not also given to a naive hope that everything's gonna work out and it's all gonna be good. No, I have trust in the one who's been victorious on my behalf. It changes the way you deal with the world. But listen, last, last of all, it changes the way you face death. It gives you a humble courage. Humble, your body matters. Do you know why it matters? Because Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Don't forget that. Creation 
matters. The environment matters. God's not going to blow it away. He's healing it. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it means this physical life matters. So we take care of our bodies. But here's the courage side. It's not my treasure. It's my body. It's not my treasure. It's not my hope. My money is not my hope. It's not my treasure. This life is not my hope. It's not my treasure. My treasure is wrapped up in Christ. You know what that means? I can move out into the world with such radical generosity and grace and love because I have been set free from the things of this world. I've been set free to be generous to others in the way that God has been generous to me. You know, there's a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. He's a professor at Baylor University. And he asked this question. It's important. All historians have to ask it. How was Christianity? Why was it so successful? Because if you don't believe in the historic reality of the resurrection, you still have to answer, how did Christianity start with this rejected person in Jerusalem? And suddenly, within 300 years, there was this change and rise and to the point that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, became a believer. How do you explain that? And he said in his book that Christians lived Jesus' principles of success. When there was a pandemic, they called it an epidemic. They didn't know it was pan. And people were sick and dying. Here's what the Romans did. They left the sick behind. Because they didn't know about much about viruses, but they knew if you're around somebody who's sick, you're going to die. And so if you're sick and you're a wife, a husband, a child, a grandchild, they'd leave you behind. And they would leave them to die. And what would happen is the Christians, they stayed. The Christians stayed, and they not only cared for their sick, they cared for the Roman sick, they cared for their enemies sick, they cared for their community. Why? Because that's what Jesus had done for them. And to live the success of Jesus' life means to live the principles of his life, and they were willing to sacrifice. Why? Because they had a humble, courageous hope. This body matters. I'm going to care for the sick. I'm going to care for somebody's body, but this world is not all I own. And you know what also happened is many people would have children, and instead of aborting them, it was much worse. They would actually just simply take that child and place the child on the side of the road for either animals or the environment simply to take. What did Christians do? Why did Christianity become successful? It's not because we were successful. It's because we cared for those who were rejected. We took children. We brought them into our homes. Not, not the children of Christians, but rather the children of the community, those that hated, despised, called them nays, brought them in. And people said, there's something unique about this God. There's something unique about these Christians. They are courageous and yet humble. They do not slander. They do not tear down. They're not afraid of the brokenness of the world. They move into the worst parts of the cities, and they have hope that God actually can do something. The resurrection changes everything. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you go out into the world, and it gives you freedom to actually be used by God in a way that brings life. Church, do you see the beauty of the resurrection? Let me ask you, have you received it? The resurrection starts by simply saying, God, I am in need of your forgiveness. I want that vision of life in me. I know I am sinful. I am weak. I know I am broken. And I want to be covered by your righteousness and forgiveness. That's where it starts. And from that place, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to give us new life, new desires, new tastes, new gifts that we move out to the world in a way 
that brings the life that we've experienced to others. Church, that's Christianity. That's the gospel. And it is not advice. It's just news that we receive. And on this day, we rejoice. And let me pray for us. Father, I'd ask in Jesus' name for those that have never responded to the gospel to simply say, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, I'm not bringing anything to you, not my success, my morality, that I have it together, but simply saying, Lord, I need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb who died for my place so that there is no separation between me and the Father. Death is finished. It has no hold. The receipt is given, and it's Christ Jesus, our Lord. And yet, Father, through the power of the Spirit, come into my life and empower me. Give me newness of life, new birth, that I might see as you see, love as you love, love myself even, and love others the way that you love us. Father, guide us into this truth that as we walk into a world that does have shadows and darkness, we can be dismayed and overwhelmed, but the light and the beauty of Jesus and his resurrection reminds us I am so sinful that Christ had to die, and yet I am so loved that he was willing to die. Father, thank you in Jesus' name.